Uh, this is the conclusion today. If you're a guest with us, we've been preaching a series on emotions. Typically, we preach through whole books of the Bible. I think we took almost two years, maybe a little bit more. This is the last. So we, we preach through books of the Bible typically, and then we'll do a couple of topical series for things that our, our church body may need more discipleship on. So um, we preach through the minor prophets. All 12 of them took us about two years. Uh, then we've done a, a series. This is message number 11 on emotions and feelings. We've decided to look at that from the scriptures. We've been looking at that from every which angle. I think it's been very helpful. Hopefully it'll be helpful in our discipleship. Today will be the last message of the series. And this message is actually, if you're looking for a title, it's the emotion of sorrow and joy. The emotion of sorrow and joy through the hope of the resurrection. Sorrow and joy through the hope of the resurrection. So we'll end this last message We'll talk about how that emotion of sorrow and joy ties into the resurrection. Hang with me because it'll be towards the end of the message. We'll tie in resurrection. Uh, after this week, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a series on, we kind of are ending the emotion series. However, we're going to explore two emotions that I think God's people need some more discipleship on. And that's about fear of the Lord. The joy of fearing the Lord. What does that look like? We're going to do that next week for a couple of weeks. And then we're going to then we're gonna do anger, the emotion of anger. Looking at that, um, and then maybe we'll do something on addiction, um, and then we'll be back into a New Testament exposition. All right, that's what's going on. Now let me do this. I have two passages of Scripture I want to read for you. So if you take your Bible, or your smartphone, um, or your dumb phone, whatever you really think of it, you stand to your feet. Let's read in the text of Scripture two areas. First, I want you to go to Matthew 26, and I want to read Matthew 26... Verse 36 through 46. Matthew 26, verse 36 through 46. And I want you to notice the emotion of sorrow and trouble. Verse 36. And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Real emotions. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And a second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Now, we've just read... Matthew 26, we're reading about the Garden Gethsemane, the cross is next, he's about to be betrayed, sorrow. Now do this, look over at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Actually, we'll look at 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded, this is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Can I ask God's blessing over what we're going to talk about this morning? Would you help us to capture the truth of these two emotions simultaneously existing at the same time? And what this looks like to bring you glory in how the resurrection of Christ centers us in a position in life where even in sorrow, there still is great joy. Let us capture this, the truth of this emotion. I fear that so much in our world, we've been captured by sorrow and have not still obeyed the command of joy. Let the resurrection bring this truth back to our souls as appropriate as we see in the scriptures. And God's people said, amen. So, we have it here. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, how does this exist? I mean, it's a question. We just read Matthew 26. He's in the garden. We know that in the garden, also, this is where Judas comes and does the betrayal kiss. They come and get him. Then as you keep reading in Matthew, you read in the other Gospels, you find that now there's all sorts of punishment. There's all sorts of bad things that are happening on the, uh, on the way to the cross and a part of the cross. And the worst suffering of all, the worst sorrow of all, is not just the physical punishment of the cross it's not the whipping it's not the crown those are bad the worst suffering of the cross is those is those three hours the worst suffering of the cross is when he cries out in aramic eli eli lama sabachthani which means my god my god why have you forsaken me the worst part of the cross was the wrath of god being poured out on him in place of sinners a theologian and hip-hop artist has a phrase in a song where he says, forever will I tell that in those three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever would in hell. So the question is this, how can this be true joy and yet sorrow? How can we say this? How can Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a sorrow. In the garden, he is sorrowful. In fact, we call this last week the Passion Week, right? You've heard this, the Passion Week. It, it starts with Palm Sunday, and, it's, and that's, of course, that's a pretty triumphal kind of entrance. But then the rest of the week doesn't look very positive. If you read the rest of this week, this past week, everything that was going on after Palm Sunday, after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you find that it's really not a pleasurable experience. His interaction, his interaction with the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. It wasn't very positive when you read about it. He, there was a lot of admonishing that had to happen on his part. You see his interaction with his disciples in this last week. It wasn't very positive. I mean, he's letting them know, hey, listen, Peter, you will, but you will, you will deny me three times, right? He says to Judas, he knows that Judas is going to betray him. He tells the disciples, you're all going to scatter because of me. 
Now, the word passion for the last week, we often think emotions, right? Passions, emotions. But you know that word passion of the Christ or the passion week of Christ? It actually isn't an emotional word, although when we hear the word passion, it is denoting some kind of emotional word. But that word passion is actually from a Latin word that actually means suffering. So actually, you could call it the passion of the Christ, but really, if you want to be technical, it's really the sufferings of Christ, the sorrows of Christ, the anguish of Christ in the last week. Here's the interesting thing, though. In the midst of all that suffering and sorrow, Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy set before him. Isn't that interesting? Sorrow and joy existing side by side. But yet sorrow is not overcoming him in such a way that joy is drowned out. Isn't that amazing? So ending kind of officially our series on emotions, the language of the soul today, I think it, it really would be helpful for us to explore this idea of how can Hebrews 12 two be true that he had joy in the midst of this whole suffering week, in the midst of the cross, in the midst of everything. How did he have joy and yet sorrow Altogether. So let me explore just a couple of things, um, and then, and then we'll sing to the Lord. We'll take communion. First off, I just want to tell you this about joy. Joy is not an option for Christians. Just so you understand, if you're in Christ, joy is actually a command of Scripture. In fact, I would tell us this. It sounds may sound weird, but to not have joy is disobedience to God, and to not have joy is living less than a spirit filled life. Doesn't Galatians chapter 5 tell us this? Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 says, And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Anybody know the next word? Joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now we all look at the fruit of the Spirit here. And by the way, it's really one fruit. It's not one of these things where we say, Well, I have the fruit of patience but, you know, kindness, I, God just hasn't given me that fruit. No, God gives the whole, it's all one big fruit. Don't know what that would look like in actual fruit, but it's one big, huge fruit. It's probably one of those weird fruits that you see in the store with all the spikes in it. And you wonder, what is that? Imagine that, maybe. But here's what we find this. I, I find oftentimes when people look at this, they'll go, yes, Lord, oh, I got to be, oh, I got to be kind. Yeah. I mean, Lord, work in me so that we, there could be patience and peace and goodness and gentleness and, oh, Lord, self-control. Like, I really need that one in love. Oh, Lord, let me love others as you, as, you, as you love them. But oftentimes it seems like we give a pass for joy. It's almost kind of like, hey, that one you kind of understand, Lord, life is hard. But yet we find Jesus, joy and sorrow, that emo- those two emotions all together at the same time. So we do have to admit to ourselves that joy is part of a real Christian life. It's part of an obedient life. It's a part of a sanctified life. If a person says, I'm filled with the Spirit of God, and joy is not in the equation, then that person is not being filled with the Spirit of God. You may have the Spirit of God as a Christian, but you may not be filled when joy is missing as a part of that whole package of the fruit of the Spirit. So joy is normal. And guess what? The most normal person ever in life was Jesus. So if you're wondering, am I dysfunctional? Yes, you are, right? Yes, I am. Because there's only one normal person, and that was Jesus. And Jesus, full joy at a time that it looks like 
sorrow should overwhelm everything. And I know a lot of times we look at Jesus and we go, wait a minute, it's just not... Nick, you're telling us about things that aren't really fair. Jesus is God, so, I mean, he kind of has a cheat card on all this. So, yes, I get it, he has sorrow. Yes, Nick, I get it, he has joy, but it's cheating because he's God. But yet, I don't want you to erase this idea. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's in the garden praying, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but thine be done. Oh, friends, I want us to know, there was actually real sorrow there at the whole time. The kind of sorrow that we experience. In fact, I would actually say the sorrow he experienced is a greater sorrow than we will ever experience ourselves. I mean, it's epic. And yet he has joy the whole time. He's living the normal life, the life that he's designed for us to live. So how can this happen? How can this mix together? Go back over to Matthew 26, and I want to show you something. And we'll build out this as we kind of go through this message, and then as we culminate in the resurrection. This emotion of sorrow and joy. Here's what I love about the scriptures. The scriptures are meant to be interpret scripture with scripture, right? So you're reading here in the passage, you find nothing about joy, but Hebrews 12, 2 tells us there's joy. So here's what I love about the scriptures. And by the way, this is how you always interpret scripture. You interpret scripture with scripture. You interpret scripture in light of all scripture. So these two things are existing at one time. Now we may think to ourselves, man, can those two things really exist all at the same time? Absolutely they can. What about James? And don't, don't turn over there. I'm just going to quote one thing because we're going to Matthew 26. But doesn't James 1, 2 say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds? So we even see that principle in the scriptures. I don't think, no, Nick, that's just Jesus. He had sorrow and he had joy. He was God. He could do that. That had never happened to us. Well, even James admits these two things can actually exist together in the same space. These two emotions can come together. But notice something interesting in Matthew 26. Go back to this. So here's Jesus. We know in Hebrews 12, 2, there's joy for him. There's delighting in God. But notice what happens in Matthew 26. In verse 36, let's read it again. And Jesus went to them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here. While I go over there, and what's the next thing he's doing? Pray. Now watch this. And taking with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Sorrowed and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Basically he said, I'm going to pray. I want you to pray for me. I want you to notice this. He has joy, and the one of the kind of behind the scenes when it comes to emotions. He has joy, and the manifestation of that joy, reaching for that joy in the midst of his sorrow, he's still engaging with God. Sorrow is something that points us to this idea of engagement with God. In fact, sorrow, it's a siren to our souls to tell us, engage with God. Here's what happens a lot of times. When we experience sorrow and suffering and anguish, here's what we typically do. If we don't have joy in the Lord, we give up at that point. We just give up. We stop getting up. We stop getting to work. We give up on relationships. We give up on friendships. We give up on life. 
But profoundly what you find here is Jesus experiencing sorrow, knowing in the background he's also experiencing joy and pleasure in the Lord. And what does that, how how does he work through that? What happens in that? He engages God still. Hey, this last week we had another kind of tornado warning. Did y'all hear the sirens kind of go off? I think it was Wednesday or Thursday. No, it was Wednesday, right? Um, It seems like these tornado things, sirens go off every Wednesday evening we're going to have youth. Two times we've had, we've had to cancel youth because of these tornado warnings. I think it happened a couple weeks before. And here's the thing. These tornado sirens, does anybody just enjoy those sirens? Are they enjoyable when they go off? Are you thinking like, I'm going to go outside and just kind of like, ah, it's Mozart symphony or something. I mean, you know, it's annoying. It's meant to be annoying. It's loud. It's meant to be loud. Why is that? Because it's trying to warn you that there's danger coming, right? Trying to warn you. Sorrow is like a siren, like a tornado siren. It's warning you. It's warning you. There's something wrong going on in your life. Now, it may not always be sin. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you've experienced a prof- something profound. And what most of the time we'll do with that emotion is we'll just shut down on life completely. But yet that's a siren to say, hey, why don't you go ahead and take shelter and take shelter with God right now? Why don't you go ahead and engage with him? Instead of Ignoring him, running from him, climbing into the pit of despair, climb into his safe arms. Notice what happens. So he's experiencing trouble and sorrow. And watch what he does. He says, disciples pray for me. I'm going to pray. Look at verse 39 of Matthew 26. And going a little farther, he fell on his face. He prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I want you to notice, he is engaging God in the midst of that emotion of suffering and pain, but yet he's still focused ultimately on the purpose and plans of God. He came to his disciples and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? He was not only desperate for engaging God, he was desperate to have others engage God on his behalf. In the midst of sorrow, If we have joy in the midst of sorrow, here's what we'll do. We'll go engage God, and then you know what we'll also do? We'll ask others to engage God on our part as well. You know, a lot of times we don't do that, do we? We get sorrowful, and we just climb into a pit, and we give up. We give up on life, relationships, friendships. We, If we even make it to work, we're dragging into work like like a wet noodle. (laughs) Like just lifeless and nothing in us. Look at verse 40. He came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Peter, I really need you praying. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, Peter. I can see it. Verse 42 again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed. My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done. So here's Jesus experiencing the sorrows of the Passion Week. And, and, and not only, I mean, there's a lot of discouraging things, but in a, in pretty soon we're going to get to the cross, right? And that's going to be terrible as well. And he has joy in the midst of it. And here's one of the things, you're going to know that you have joy in the midst of all that sorrow, that emotion of sorrow, and that emotion of joy, if it leads you to engage with God and ask others to engage on God on your behalf. I can tell you this, friend, in the midst of your sorrow, I'm not worried about you. I'm really not. I think you're going to be okay. My concern as a pastor always is when my people experience sorrow and anguish and they just, they just kind of basically 
crawl into a hole, try to cover dirt over themselves, and just act like that's actually going to solve it all. And that person was missing on something very important. They're missing out on joy. They're missing out on joy. Now notice, just because right here he's experiencing sorrow, don't think that he's up, you know, swan dancing or anything like that, okay? I think that there's, I mean, from his disciples' perspective, they can't see that there's any emotion of joy existing in the background of this sorrow. But there is, and here's the evidence. Notice he says to God, not my will, but whose? The Lord's, the Father's. His ultimate pleasure in life and glory in life is that God would be glorified and his will would be accomplished. That was his joy. You couldn't see it, but the soul's desire was that. Look back at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. So he says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. A lot of people would look at that, who for the joy that was set before him, a lot would say, oh, okay, I get it, Nick. The joy that was set before him was our redemption. And I would tell you this, that's a... That's a secondary fallout. That's, that, that's a good thing. And yes, that was there. I mean, God so loved the world. We can't deny that. But in context, in interpreting all of Scripture, what was the joy set before him? The joy set before him was obeying the Father's will. The joy set before him was pleasing God. The joy set before him was bringing glory to God. There's something called the Shorter Westminster Confession. In our men's theology study this past week, we actually read about some of the creeds. And, and in the Shorter Westminster Confession, and majority of us would probably go like, I don't even know what you said when you said that, right? Westminster, let me map quest that. Like, where is that at? But here's what I would tell you. I bet you know the first, I bet you know the first uh, question from the Westminster Shorter Confession. I bet you do. Here it is. Let me ask you this question. What is the chief goal of man? Most of us know it. To what? And enjoy him forever. Notice how those things are tied together. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What was the joy that was set before him? That helped him to endure the cross, despise the shame, and today he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was bringing glory to God in his life. Completely satisfying the purpose that God had for him. He brought complete glory to God. And in that, he could experience profound sorrow, the emotion of sorrow, but yet joy all at the same time. You know the interesting thing about us as followers of Jesus? We actually have that ability. Those two emotions can exist at the same time. At the same time. You don't have to turn there, but do you remember? (laughs) Say, do you remember? Man, it was a lot of messages. But one of the minor prophets we preached from was Habakkuk, right? Y'all remember that? Habakkuk, you might be like, no, I do not remember that. Nick, that was, it was like a hundred sermons ago, okay? Well, I'll, I'll recall to you something that you may or may not remember. It's very pivotal. It's at the very end of Habakkuk where he's contemplating they're about to go into Babylonian captivity. 
For Judah, this is bad, not a good thing, very negative thing. And Habakkuk, in a final praise in chapter 3, he says, this, he says these two verses. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields have no food. This is Habakkuk 3.17. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. So basically, it's an agricultural society. So when things aren't growing, animals don't get fed. Animals don't get fed, they die. All, basically, we're talking about really bad stuff, famine. It, kind of the equivalent of gas goes up to $20 a gallon, okay, right? And, and you know, you can't go to the store. It's, it's kind of like the first week of COVID where you go and you're just like, you know, there's no toilet paper and there's no bacon, bacon, right? Like, how are toilet paper and bacon like the first thing everybody runs for, right? Like, it's like bad. There's nothing. There's nothing. That's definitely something to be sorrowful about. I mean, can you catch the sorrow? He's displaying Babylon's coming for us. And this is real, y'all. This is what could happen, did happen. This is what can happen for our nation. This is, this is going down. But then notice this. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. So you're in Habakkuk, contemplating the sorrow of famine and dearth. It's about to come through the Babylonian captivity and exile. He's still saying, I will take my joy in the Lord. I will joy in the purpose, plans, and character of God. In the midst of my sorrow, that will undergird me. You know, one of the sorrows in our life, I think, that really drags, I mean, one of the th- there's many different things that contribute to sorrow in life, right, for, for us. I think anxiety sometimes is one of those really big ones. Anxiousness and anxiety. It's a, a worry and fretting about the future, right? I, maybe, am I the only one that ever thinks that way? Y'all probably don't. I get it, right? But just in case there was one person here who's ever experienced an anxiety in life, when we're experiencing anxiety, basically we're worrying about something for tomorrow that God hasn't that God's not there to give us grace. What I mean is this. When you're worried about the future, typically you're worried about what's going to happen when it's there, and that brings the anxiety. When you actually solve anxiety, when you start to go, when that future bad thing comes, God will be present there as much as he is today, and it may not be okay, but I'll be okay because he will give me grace and mercy to help him in time of need. We're... we're well, the thing about anxiety, why it's so sinful, is because we're worried that God won't give his grace when that, if that day comes. We're, we're actually worried that he won't do it. We actually stop being anxious when we actually realize you promise grace and mercy for that day. So I don't have to stress out about tomorrow. I just have to be concerned about today. Your grace will meet me today. And if, I, if, that, if that bad thing comes for tomorrow, your character will meet me at that same time. But notice something, if you were to look in Philippians 4, and if you want to turn there, you can, you'll, you'll have a little bit of time. Philippians 4 is very interesting. It starts off at Philippians 4, 4 through 7, addressing the kind of anxiousness, right? Anxiousness. And notice it says this, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So that's joy. Notice this, take joy in the Lord, take joy in his character, take joy in bringing glory to him. Take joy. Then he says in verse 5, 
Let your reasonableness, let your gentle spirit be known to everyone. Some of your versions may say gentle spirit instead of reasonableness. I, I, I'm using the ESV. I, I think the ESV could, didn't do a good translation of that one. A lot of your versions may say gentleness. Be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Then he says this. Do not be anxious about ever, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now I want you to notice something. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Get it? Now, so here's an emotion. Rejoice. Rejoice. You're anxious. Rejoice in him. What's the method of going about that? Look at it. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. What is it saying? Let this hard moment of anxiousness drive you to engage with God at this time. Just like Jesus has sorrow, engages with God in the garden and focuses his life on the character and glory of God and still can experience joy in the midst. Philippians says of anxiety, rejoice in the Lord. And in fact, do this. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let God know your requests. Engage with God. Then he says in verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Even the sorrow of anxiousness says, rejoice, rejoice. And I'm just telling you, for, for the emotions of our life, you'll know the emotion of joy is working right in the midst of your sorrow when, we are, when you are driven to still engage with God in the midst of that sorrow. Jesus engages with God in the midst of the sorrow. That's appropriate joy when sorrow. It's not appropriate when in sorrow we just drive into the grave. Are you getting what I'm saying? I mean, we just drive into this idea of we don't go to God, we don't engage with God. And by the way, sometimes climbing into that hole may not just be just the idea of I'm not going to talk to anybody, not going to church anymore, not praying with anybody, not reading the scriptures. But then we'll do things to distract ourselves. Oh, yeah, we distract ourselves, don't we? This little thing in our pocket, right? We all have one, right? You know what's interesting about this phone that, that we have that others didn't? That when people through history have experienced sorrow, they could easily climb into a pit of despair because that's all they could think about. But we have this little thing in our hand with a multitude, an unfathomable amount of apps that even sometimes... We don't climb, we maybe don't climb into the pit and then ignore everybody and don't engage with God, but we climb into the pit by this idea of just pure distraction. You ever notice that sometimes when we're sorrowful in life, when we're in anguish in life, we'll actually just try to find some way to distract ourselves. You know that most Netflix binging, Hulu binging, Prime binging, whatever type of platform there is right now, most binging, Sometimes we have sorrow and anguish in life and we're just trying to find out a way to distract ourselves instead of engaging with God through that sorrow of the moment. And my friends, I would say this. Engaging with God in the sorrow of that moment, that's the opportunity to actually experience joy. That's the, that's the opportunity to see how good he is. That's the time that that emotion is most essential and I'm not saying that means that you're going to run up and high five people or, you know, run out and, and run three miles because you're just so happy and you're fist pumping in the air. 
I mean, that might happen. But also some of it might be this idea of just like Jesus in the garden, this calm but steady assurance that, that you are fulfilling God's will. He is getting glory. And in, his, in him getting glory and much being made of him, you are most satisfied. So we see this in the Passion Week. We see that there's this joy and sorrow mixed together, and we see how it comes about. Now, let's do this. Now let's kind of turn to some ideas of the resurrection, how this impacts this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, how does this tie into the resurrection? Although what I'm about to read to you doesn't say the word sorrow or joy, you're going to see the components of it as I, as I kind of articulate through this. So just hang with me. But I will tell you this. I'm up here and I'm telling you this sorrow and joy, and you're thinking like, Nick, that's, that sounds so great. I get it. it. sounds so, I mean, I get it. Jesus engages with God. He doesn't give up. He doesn't distract himself. He engages with God. I get it. Because he he's experiencing joy, he can still engage God in the sorrow. I get it. But Nick, that's just not going to happen for me. And I would say, well, you're wrong. If the resurrection of Christ is true, then you have all the ability in the world. If the resurrection of Christ has been applied to your account, then all that is true. The resurrection of Christ, it's our anchor. If, we, if the resurrection of Christ, if we're, fi- if we're filtering our sorrow through the truth is that in, because of the resurrection, we can know some really great things. We can know that sin does not have the ultimate triumph over us. It doesn't. Through the resurrection of Christ, we can know that actually as bad as this life is, there will come a day when this pain is over. Even your own physical bodies, right? This last week, I, um, it was actually, actually last week, uh, I went for our yearly physical, right? And you go in there and, you know, all this blood gets drained off your arm. And then a couple of days later, you get, you know, ours is digital where, I think everything's digital, but you get, um, they want, you know, they have us on this app, right? Baptist Health has us on this app. And, you know, they, all your test results come into this app, right? And the interesting thing about this app with all your test results is it catalogs it all, right? So for the past, since 2012, I've been going to the same doctor and everything, every blood work, you know, from vitamin D to testosterone to um, cholesterol to everything, right? You can see it through the years from 2012 to today. I can see it. You know, it's interesting. I can go back to 2012 and look at 2022 and just the hard data. I can notice a couple things. I think I'm dying. <laughs> like, them numbers don't look as good as they used to. Now, that could be a source of going, man, Lord, I'm so, oh, this hurts so much. Or yet I can say, well, that just kind of tells me your truth told me that like gravity is pulling me down to the grave, but gravity will not take over. The resurrection of Christ says, I've got a new body. I'm going to be with you. And all this is temporary and momentary and light of glory. So what happens there's a little bit of sorrow in that moment, but yet there's profound joy. Because in the moment when I was looking through those, 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 um, blood, that blood work, I was sitting there going like, okay, well, that's interesting. And yet I was able to go, 
But praise be you, this is not at the end. In fact, there's a positive part to this. This tells me that I'm getting closer to you. Like I'm steps closer to you. Now I know that may sound like, man, that's morbid. Like who, who thinks like that? I, I think we're kind of messed up actually. You ever notice how much we don't want to grow old? You ever notice that? We don't want to grow old. Man, sometimes you can't even tell someone's growing old anymore. You really can't. I mean, like we color our hair. Not saying it's bad to color your hair, right? I mean, you know, but we color our hair. We cut our faces. In fact, you you can't tell how old someone is anymore. All you can tell is how many cuts they've had on their face, right? That's, that's the only thing that you can really do. Because we think there's something bad about aging. But wait a minute. Isn't there a good thing about aging? Doesn't it mean that we're getting closer to glory? Doesn't it mean we're getting closer to the resurrection body? But I think sometimes, here's what we do. We get sorrow and angst and we see the agony of what's happening as I get older and things aren't the same. And I wake up in the morning in my 20s, I got up and everything was okay. In my 40s, I get up and then like something kind of cracks. Another thing cracks and just taking a step on the floor. Like since when was taking a step hurtful, right? And like all these things are happening. Now, if we're engaging with God in the midst of that, there's actually joy to be found. Because now we're able to think his perspective. We're able to go, God, let me glorify you in this. What a lot of people do is at that point, they're thinking, I've got to do whatever I can to cover up in my soul that I'm actually getting older. But instead, it could be actually an opportunity to go, God, I am getting older. But that also means not much longer, Jesus. I'll be with you. I'll have a resurrected body. I'll be in your presence. And heaven is great. And, but heaven's really great because of one who exists as the center point and light and glory of heaven. Like, God, I'm getting closer. Praise God. God, there's more gray on my hair. Praise God. God, there's more hair in my ears than there used to be. Praise God. I'm just saying, I've discovered like the older you get, you, hair starts growing in other places. Hair starts leaving other places. All kind of works together. Let me point something in 1 Corinthians 15 that's profound here. Look in verse 12. He says, now for this whole chapter, he's talking about the resurrection. He just talked about it. He started off in the chapter. He talked about the central point of the gospel. It's the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Skip down to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. And here's what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He's... He's trying to counteract an error that's being believed by these Corinthians. And then he says in verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. By the way, those are negative things. Those are negative things. Verse 15, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised from the dead, whom if he did not raise, if it is true then the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who've also fallen asleep, that means those who've also died, who've already died at this point in Christ, they perished. This is all a pretty sorrowful idea, he says. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, he's basically saying there's no resurrection, If Christ didn't resurrect, we have no resurrection. 
And if that's true in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. He basically says, if Christ did not resurrect, then climb in a pit, my friend. Pity me. Pity each other. There is no hope. Things are bad. Forget about it. But here's what I love about the resurrection. That's not the story for us. So this is the profoundness of how can you still have joy in the midst of all this? How can we still glorify God? Because the resurrection tells us that this isn't it. This isn't over. There's actually something better waiting for us. In fact, when you keep look down, when you keep doing more reading, if you look in like verse 42, he's talking about the resurrection body. And look what he says in verse 42 of, of 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. It is sown, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. Talking about the resurrected body that we're going to have, much like Jesus. It is sown in dishonor, verse 43, it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. He says in verse 45, For the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of the dust. The second man from heaven. Verse 48, as with the man of the dust, so also those who are of the, of the dust. As the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. He's saying, you're going to get a glorified, a, a, body from, a body of heaven fitted and fashioned for heaven. Like, this is good. This is, he's saying this is good. The, the truth of the resurrection, this is good. Look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now go down to verse 58. Just a final recap of many things. We, we, we're not reading the whole text, but he says something in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, as a result of all this, what he's taught in chapter 15 about the resurrection, it says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. As a result of the resurrection, he basically is saying, everything you're doing, immovable, steadfast, abounding, working, it's not in vain. So here's the great thing about the resurrection. If the resurrection wasn't true, I couldn't say to you today, you have sorrow, engage with God. You have sorrow, evidence that your joy is in the will and purpose and character and glory of God is that you will engage God in the midst of your sorrow. If the resurrection wasn't true, couldn't tell you that. But because the resurrection is true, because the resurrection is our justification, because the resurrection is a reality, although you and I will die, we will rise. And the problems and sorrows that you and I face, those emotions that come from it, are momentary and temporary God has set us to live a Hebrews 12.2 kind of life for the joy set before us. And that joy set before us is the ultimate idea that all of life is about the glory of God and finding, and God is most satisfied in us when we are most glorified in Him, when everything is about His glory. It's amazing how we absorb life when everything is about that. That's the center point of where we find joy. This is God's will for our life. This is what God wants. I'll end with this text. Look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. 
So turning to John 15. If there's sorrow in your life, and if there's not sorrow in your life, you just haven't lived long enough. You just really haven't lived long enough. I mean, well, here's the great thing. I'm 43 years old now. I know everybody's like, you're not that old. You can't think you're that old. You can't, you can't claim that. Uh, I'm, I think I am, at least I, I, I feel like I am. I feel like I'm getting old. And the, the, the interesting thing is this. Every, every year, things are not the same. And I used to get very, I can remember my 20s thinking, okay, I do want to be with Jesus, but Jesus, there's so much I want to do in life right now. There's just so much I want to experience and live. And, and like, like Jesus, I know everybody's excited for you to come back, but if I was honest with you, Jesus, I'm not that excited. Like, I kind of want to live this thing out a little bit. Do anybody know, understand what I'm saying? Like, I just want to live this thing out a little bit, Jesus. But here's what I love. Year after year is now, I'm, I'm kind of what you would kind of cut halfway through life if I'm living kind of the normal life expectancy. I'm kind of halfway through life. And now I'm kind of looking at the end and saying, you know what? It looks, it looks a lot better. In fact, if you came back today, Lord, that'd be a-okay. Even, even there's these ideas that didn't even exist in my soul before. In my 20s, the idea of leaving earth early and leaving the people I love, it, it almost kind of, it almost brought like fear into my life. Do you understand that? But, but now at 43, it's almost in my soul, it's like, you know what? If you take me, if you kill me tomorrow, as long as my family's taken care of, like, I, I'm kind of okay. I just think you're much better. What is that? That's God through aging and life and sanctification preparing me for him. But what's going on? Because that what's going on is in the midst of the sorrow of aging. Like, aging's not fun. I mean, have you noticed that aging's not fun just intrinsically? I mean, it, it's not fun to have to go to the doctor more times than you did years ago, right? It's not fun to go to the doctor and the doctor just look at you and go like, I don't know what's wrong with you, right? It's not fun. But as life keeps happening, it's almost this deal of like, I'm engaging you through that sorrow, Lord, and I find joy and pleasure. I, what an opportunity to glorify you and to set my soul on the resurrection that you have focused for me someday when I will be not only in the place, but the person of glory. And in that, I find joy. In you, I find joy. Now we end with this. You know in John chapter 15, this is the whole abide, about abiding in Christ, the essential part of living a spirit-filled life. If you want to have the fruit of the spirit, it's not if you actually want to, God's commanded it. You've got to abide in Jesus. But notice at the very end of this abiding, he says this. All this abiding, he says this. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you. My joy. Do you remember Hebrews 12 too? That joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So the kind of joy that he's experiencing in Hebrews 12 too, at the same time he's experiencing sorrow is the same kind of joy that we can experience even in the midst of sorrow right here. Our justification is the resurrection. Our justification is today. As I end this message, I also want to point something out to you. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and King, um, and you have sorrow, I don't have much hope for you. I'm sorry, I don't. I mean, I don't. And in fact, I would say this. 
the, if, if you have this idea of like, I cannot get past the sorrow of my life, you're an unbeliever. You're someone who's never bowed the knee to Christ. I would tell you, don't be, I'm not surprised. Like, how else could you deal with life? There's no other hope for you. The only hope you have in life is that things on earth might get a little bit better for you. And that's it. And eventually, friend, I'm telling you, it's not going to get better for you. You live long enough, it's not going to get better for you. But if today you bow the knee to Christ, I'm not, what's going to happen is you'll have a better day awaiting for you for sure. Remember I said earlier, there's the sounding, the alarms that kind of warn us, right? That tornadoes are coming, right? And those, those tornado alarms of sorrow are meant to take us to, put, to, to go into shelter and engage with God in the midst of our sorrows, experiencing that joy. But also I would tell you this, if you're not in Christ, the alarms of sorrow in your world are an alarm that your sins are still on your record and you are still culpable and God is putting a weight of guilt on you that you're going to have to bear on, on your own. And it's a siren, it's a warning call to repent, trust in Christ, follow him, experience him as the true joy of your life. It's a siren call to run to him. If you're here today and you've never bowed your knee to Jesus, I did at 16. Several of us, most of us have here. Jesus calls you, commands you, wants you to bow the knee to him. And the resurrection is your justification that all this is true. Would you stand, to, would you stand with me? We're going to sing to the Lord and while we're singing to the Lord, um, we're going to be passing out communion to you to take. And we're going to sing two stanzas, two um, lines. We're going to sing about half the song. Then we're going to take communion together. We're going to lead you through that. Uh, then we're going to sing back again together. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper? What a delight now to sing to you, to think about the resurrection, and to take this small symbol of a meal. I need to remember your blood and remember your body. I need to remember it as a part of my joy and sorrow. Lord, let us today take this worthy. Let us confess our sin. Let us reconcile. Let us take this in view of we'll take it someday with you in glory. Let us have a resurrection hope as we take this Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing with us?